From Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, you are listening to Art Waves, a mini-series about art, local artists, and spaces open to art in Mendocino County. I'm Victor Palomino, and with Marty Dorling, we will explore the local creative sector with conversations about art, the creative process, inspiration, and local spaces to see or make art, and more. In episode 3, we visit two spaces where you can explore the history of art in Mendocino County and the beauty of it. Part 1 will talk with the Grace Houston Museum about their space and current and future exhibitions. And in part 2, Marty visit the Mendocino Coastal Botanical Gardens. We begin with part 1, the Grace Hudson Museum. My name is David Burton, and I'm the director of the Grace Hudson Museum. Uh, my name is Alyssa Bogue, and I am the curator of education and exhibits here at the Grace Hudson Museum. Grace Carpenter Hudson, uh, arguably one of the most, if not most notable person to come out of Ukiah. Her family settled in the Ukiah area when she was a child. She was born in Potter Valley, and she uh, demonstrated a a very strong aptitude for drawing and painting when she was a child, so much so that her parents sent her uh, when she was 14 years old, more or less, to the San Francisco School of Design to study art. And she excelled there, and her professors kept encouraging her and kept encouraging her parents to continue her art education. When she finished with school in San Francisco, she came back to Ukiah, was working in her father's uh, photographic studio. Her family known Pomo people all their life, uh, from Potter Valley and here in Ukiah. So she grew up around Pomo people and was very comfortable with them. And she decided to start painting them, uh, painting portraits, scenes of everyday life. And in 1890 or so, she married John. John Hudson was a medical doctor from Tennessee who had come out to be the physician for the railroad. Ukiah was the terminus of the railroad in those days. But his big passion was ethnography, a very big love for better understanding native peoples, not only in California, but all over. And so uh, he spent a lot of time going out in country, if you will, uh, meeting Pomo peoples, documenting their language, their life ways. He collected a lot of baskets along the way. And um, when he and Grace met, they, I think, have, must have had a, a, a kinship over Native peoples, and certainly he encouraged her to continue painting in that genre. And Grace kind of splashed onto the commercial scene in the early 1890s. Little Mendocino was the painting that kind of made her famous. And there, you know, there were very few people, if any, artists, contemporary artists in 1890s who were painting Native subject matter, which isn't to say that that was popular with everyone. There was a, a critic, an art critic in San Francisco who once wrote about Grace, why a young woman of such great painting talent should waste her time on painting degenerate Indians. Luckily for Grace, she did have an audience for her subject matter, and her career as a professional painter took off. How was her relationship with the indigenous people that she was using as a subject? There certainly was a power dynamic between Grace and her subjects, but Grace did consider many of them friends, and they considered her friends as well. 
So one of the people she painted frequently was Josepha Dick, who was a master basket weaver, and she was just phenomenally talented. And Grace painted her many times. And so, you know, they write letters back and forth to each other or with help anyway to write those letters. And so they both consider each other friends, even though there there is certainly a power dynamic between them. Giuseppe was one of those Pomo basket weavers who actually made pretty good money selling her baskets. She's also uh, one of uh, the paintings Alyssa and I uh, love dearly from by Grace is called The Tarweed Gatherer. And Josepha Dick is a model in that painting of a woman about to go harvesting tarweed seeds. And one of the things um, uh, we love about it uh, is, is the dignified way that she has her posing. This is a strong woman embracing her culture and getting ready to do some hard work. Yeah, because they're not like the stereotypical image that you see of the indigenous people in that time. They're more like caricatures. These ones are like a portrait of their real life. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the things that makes Grace's work really distinctive is that she is portraying Native peoples, but in this really complementary, everyday, human way. And one other note about the tarweed gather is right now in our wild gardens, we, we have blossoming tarweed. And so it's one of those nice things about our museum is that we have the wild gardens and then we have connections to the wild gardens with the baskets or with the paintings. So in the tarweed gather... You can see tarweed, which is, it's got this seed that you harvest. And then there are also two baskets in the painting that are used to harvest the tarweed. So one is kind of used to, to whack the flower heads, and the other is used to collect the seeds that fall. And some of the seeds fall around outside of the baskets, which is great because that's how you get more tarweed the next year. And then the baskets, of course, are also made with plants that are in our basketry garden. Why the museum is here? Who was, why the idea of creating this museum? So Grace established her career as a painter. And in 1911, she and her husband commissioned the creation of the Sun House, which is a redwood craftsman bungalow that you see when you drive into the museum. That was really the beginning of the museum, was the, the design and building of that house. And Grace and John lived in that house from 1912 up through John died in 1936 and Grace in 37. So they lived in that house until then. They did not have any children. So the person they uh, gave the house to in their will was Mark Carpenter, uh, Grace's nephew, uh, the son of Grace's twin brother, who lived in Southern California and was involved in motion pictures, uh, silent motion pictures, mm. uh, among other things. So it was like an art creative uh, yeah. family. Well, yeah, and you know, A.O. Carpenter, father, was a very well-established photographer both a portrait photography at a studio, but also documenting the timber industry, the, the um, railroads, and all the, all the stuff around Mendocino County. And her mother, Helen, was not a professional painter, but she was a pretty good painter in her own right. And Helen also worked in the photography studio, too. So if you see a portrait from a studio photo in Ukiah, you don't know if A.O. took it or if Helen took it. And then Grace would kind of um, sometimes add color to those images. Not your traditional family from the from that time, <laughs> right? Right. So when well, we were talking about Grace's grandmother too, who was this activist for women's rights and temperance and abolition, and she would go out um, speaking about these issues very passionately. And what also made her unique was that she worked to support her family. So that wasn't necessarily true of a lot of people who were advocating for those things. And so she does come from this this line of kind of strong women. Uh, and Grace and John have passed away, and 
the house now belongs to her nephew, Mark Carpenter. And he and his wife, Melissa, lived in the house. Mark passed away before Melissa did. And she remarried a Ukiah man named Otis Kendrick. But they, neither Mark nor Melissa, nor Melissa or Otis, had children either. So well, now where does the house and the property go? And it was about three acres around the property. And the thinking was, boy, you know, wouldn't it be lovely if the house could be preserved as a historic home, as a tribute to the legacy of John and Grace Hudson? And so they approached, uh, Melissa and Otis approached the city of Ukiah about purchasing the house and the property once they were deceased. And so, uh, long story short, the city agreed to buy the property in the house and all the contents in the house for $145,000, somewhere in that neighborhood. And one of the things that I discovered, that was one of the first documents I looked at when I started working here. And one of the most fascinating things about that document uh, which is almost unknown in this city, which is why I like to talk about it any chance I get, is that the city would purchase the land and the house and the property. And if, they were, if the city was ever unwilling or unable to continue using the house as a historic home and museum, then they needed to offer it to the California Historical Society. And if the California Historical Society didn't want the responsibility of that, then they had to offer it to the state of California, the state park system. And the state parks have all sorts of historic homes all around the state. And if they didn't want it, they needed to find the closest living relative to Grace, and the house would be offered to that person to do with whatever they wanted. They could sell it. They could move into it. They could continue it as a Uh historic home. So all that was in the contract? Yeah. Oh. So that, that's kind of a, the leverage. It's, city, you're going to buy this, but don't turn this into something else. Yeah, don't turn the down the house. There's going to be a legacy here. Correct. Mm-hmm. So that was in the mid-70s. And, of course, Melissa and Otis, one of the clauses were, we get to live in the house until we pass away. Once they were both gone, the city took full possession of the house. And one of the first things they did was they had an agreement with Sonoma State University to have some people. I'm delisting you much about a, this it part. It was 76 and 77. It was actually before Otis passed because they wanted to make sure that things didn't walk away from the house. So They, um, they wanted to do an inventory of everything here. And then, of course, was it the Sunhouse Guild who kind of operated the house as a museum? And it was just the house at that point. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, beginnings of the Sunhouse Guild were the, the first few volunteers who uh, decided to give tours of the house and set up the house so it could reflect the history of mm. Grace and John. Uh, but it was just like a regular house as, as, they, yeah. as yeah. they lived yeah. there. And I think uh, they had some of her paintings on the wall and that kind of thing. So you had this, these, this volunteer group who ran it as, as the Sun House. And somewhere in the uh, early to mid-80s, there were other people who were civic-minded who said, you know, the house isn't big enough to adequately represent Grace's body of work or John's interests as well. It reflects the home they lived in and says a little bit about them, but wouldn't it be wonderful to build a museum and cultural center? So a campaign began to raise money 
to build what is now the museum. And it was all privately funded. I mean, obviously, they kept the city posted on what they were doing. And close to a million dollars were raised to build the original museum, which was a little smaller than the museum you see here today. The back galleries, the Grace Gallery, the Basket Gallery, the History Gallery, those were added on in the early 2000s. But again, all private money was raised for that. When the museum was completed, the structure was completed, the Sunhouse Guild sold the building to the city for a dollar. Basically saying, we built it, you got to take care of this now too. And one of the nice things about the building too is that it did have and still does have storage vaults. So it's not a great idea to store paintings in a hot and dusty attic. And so having the building, a lot of what we have, you can't necessarily see. And we do rotate things on and off display because you don't really want them on display all the time. It's not great for them. Yeah. Um, and also for visitors. Yeah. They, they will have a, they can see something different. So the city until today is still... Yes, owns the and 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 in the in the 90s when they realized, well, this is a wonderful building, but it's not big enough. Then they raised to do an addition, and that's what comprises the structure today. And the city, yes, the city continued to maintain responsibility for the infrastructure, and then they decided to hire a, a staff. And so what had been all volunteers suddenly became staff for the city. But the Sunhouse Guild did not go away. They continue today, to this very day as a group, as a volunteer group, their own 501c3. And what they do now is they raise money to support exhibitions, programs, and marketing. Those are the three areas that the city will not pay for. And I think it was by design. The city is the largest investor in the museum. I don't know the full story behind this, but I think there's a wisdom in having a public-private partnership. Because it's the city of Ukiah, you, you are subject to all sorts of rules and regulations when it comes to, for instance, capital projects. You've got to go out to three bids and all of that stuff. Whereas having the private organization can raise money for the exhibits and whatnot. Uh, and it also shows a, an investment of the citizens of the city of Ukiah as well as the city of Ukiah. You have more independence and, and you have also a sense of belonging. And so today the museum is funded in part by the Sunhouse Guild, the city, but also the endowment board is another important part of the museum that helps support the different functions that we have. So tell me a little bit about the exhibitions, like the exhibition that you have in the space. Every museum has what's called an interpretive agenda. It's where you establish what your core competencies are, what your collection, what kind of programming your collection support, and how you fulfill your mission through your program. And uh, clearly we have a big interest in, in teaching people about the, the life and history of Grace and John Hudson, about Pomo peoples as well. We also, because of the area we're in, we're very mindful about environmental issues. We don't necessarily have a huge body of collections to support that, but we do a lot of public programs around that. In terms of exhibitions, we cover early California painting, which would be Grace's era and her peers. We do both shows that we organize in-house. We do the research, we, we utilize our collections, or we borrow collections, and we organize it, we put it together. 
but uh, we can't do that with every single show. Our staff just isn't big enough to do that. So uh, the museum has a history of looking for appropriate traveling shows that have been organized by other museums or other entities. Like the show we have up now, Pulped Under Pressure, we did not organize. It's a traveling show. But one of the things that uh, we do, aside from early California painting, we like to do uh, rotating exhibitions about native cultures. Not only Pomo cultures, but pan-North America cultures. Since I've been here, which has been almost five years, we did brought in two traveling shows that dealt with contemporary native printmaking and contemporary native photography. One of the reasons we do that is because public education isn't very strong in teaching Native American history. And so museums that have native collections, I personally feel that we, are, we have an obligation to teach people as much as we can about native peoples in general. And so we'll, co we'll do shows that involve other tribes and other artists from other nations. And then the other thing that we're interested in is contemporary Mendocino County arts. For 30 years now, the museum has developed a history of doing periodic shows that focus solely on local artists. And so the very first show they ever did was in 1990. It was called Leiden, Magruder, and Knight. An association of three. We just celebrated the 30th anniversary mm -hmm. of the first show yeah that was solely about Mendocino County artists. It was a big deal because there, at that time the museum was smaller, so there was only one main exhibition space. And so they went to the museum and they said, we would like to do this exhibit. The, and, the three artists. And the museum staff said, well, if we show your work, we won't be able to show Grace's work. And, and so it was on the fence if they would be able to do it or not, but they did do it. And so that was the very, the very first rotating exhibition that we had. I guess it was popular enough. It was incredibly popular. So when they saw, oh, people will come out to see their friends and neighbors and wanting to see what a Mendocino County artist is interested in. And that opened the door for creating, to integrating contemporary Mendocino County artists into the portfolio of rotating exhibitions. And yeah. there are two kind of other traveling exhibits I just want to mention. One we did was called Postcards from Mecca, and it featured Lula and Susie, who were two young women in Southern California, mostly during the 1920s, and they would go out into the desert and they would take photographs of the landscapes, but also of the different characters out there, cowboys and some rough characters, I think. A man who loved his, his burrow so much, he fed them pancakes and... Um, <laughs> so there are some great stories. So that was a traveling show from Exhibit Envoy, but it was a way to showcase, you know, young women like Grace who were going out and kind of doing their own thing, keeping a record of, of the environment. Uh, one of the things that, that Susie and Lulu were doing was documenting what the Southern California deserts looked like before they became Palm Springs and the Coachella oh. Valley. And so one of the things that Alyssa found intriguing about that, she connected it to A.O. Carpenter's photography in Mendocino County. So she supplemented that traveling show with a section from our collections based on A.O. Carpenter. And the connections between A.O. and Lulu and Susie and then with Grace, it, it all tied in very nicely. Yeah. Did you try to look for like female artists in particular? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. And then another show we'll be doing, um, so our next upcoming show is called Gathering Time, Pomo Art During the Pandemic. And after that, we will be doing a show about seaweed. Um, and that will feature art. It'll also feature the history of the science. And it'll also feature 
some well the relationship the too between local native peoples and seaweed which was a, a something they harvested on an annual basis and there are today there are arguments going on between state of california laws pertaining to harvesting seaweed which a lot of native peoples in this area are sort of protesting that because it's preventing them from doing what they did have done traditionally I think like with a lot of environmental causes, just like there's a lot of environmental destruction for other things and, um, you know, not sustainable harvesting, I think the kelp forests face some of those same, yeah. those same challenges. So let's talk about the current exhibition. So Pulped Under Pressure, The Art of Handmade Paper. This was uh, a show that was offered to us as a traveling show long before the pandemic. Uh, it was offered to us at a time when it fit a slot that they had open and we had open. But the primary reason we we wanted the show was, you know, because we have a lot of artists and craft makers in this county, this is a a type of artwork, making your own paper to begin with and then making art with your paper that we we thought would be of great interest to, to artists. Artists, you know, can settle into a particular medium, painting, sculpture, quilting, but if you're an artist at heart, you're fascinated with all sorts of mediums. So we thought uh, Pulped Under Pressure would sort of bring us an art form that people don't really see very often. And the programs we've added to it have been, three of them have been workshops about papermaking. In fact, one's coming up on August 7, the week before the show closes. The show is open till August 14. And that one, Nino Villamore, whose work is in the room where we are right now as part of a pop-up show, she'll be here to talk about her work. She kind of casts paper into a, a mold, and mm-hmm. she'll be here to talk more about it, and also people will get to kind of do a small sample themselves. So okay. that's what will be happening on, on August 7. So that would be, so the exhibition is up until August 14. August 14, <laughs> which is a Sunday, and the program with uh, Nino Villamore is on August the 7th. And Nino's pop-up is up until August the 7th. Did the... Uh, pandemic how are you back to open in regular hours with regular yes yeah we we have managed to get through the pandemic okay um when we we closed uh, in march of 2020 by mandate of the state of california and uh, Alyssa hadn't yet joined us but i have to say uh it was a big challenge the fact that we were closed to the public didn't mean that we should stop doing what we do and the biggest challenge was how do we keep an audience engaged while they can't come in here and see it? Uh, on an equally important note, how do we keep our members engaged? How do we, there's no guarantee they're going to renew their memberships if there's nothing for them to see. So that kind of forced us into learning how to do virtual programs, which is something just about any 21st century museum does, but we never had the time or staffed time to be able to figure that out and so Alyssa came right around that time she was critically essential in figuring out how to do virtual programs and they've been very popular with people in fact I might I might add uh, referring back to Pult Under Pressure the first program we had was a, a zoom a zoom with the two curators of the show and we had a very good audience for that who wanted to know how did how do you how do you make paper art paper and all of that stuff so that's another service they not only got to work with paper in the workshops but learn the history of it Mm. as well and during covid we also upped our social media or we said social media presence but we also we did programs in our wild garden since it was outside Mm. so once it was a little bit safer Mm -hmm. then we used that space 
do you offer programs in a slightly safer environment? Yeah, that's some, something interesting that the pandemic created. It's like everybody had to adapt yeah. and like create new things. And there's things that are sticking you, mm-hmm. that you can continue and they become Absolutely. part of your of your services. The the lemonade of pandemic was really having the luxury of time to create virtual programs and see what works and what doesn't work. So let's talk about the next exhibition, but first let's introduce you. Tell me uh, your name and what's your position with the museum. Hi, I'm uh, Mio Marufo, and I am uh, currently the guest curator here at the museum uh, for this upcoming show. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm the environmental director for Giddyville Rancheria, though, in my profession. So tell us a little bit about the next exhibition. The next exhibition is called Gathering Time, Pomo Art During the Pandemic. And... What it, what, what, how it came about was, actually, I think David was the one that, hey, do you want to do a show? <laughs> Mio, who has done a lot of educational work with the museum, the curriculum for the Wild Gardens, any number of programs, she's been a wonderful resource for us. And when we talked about wanting to do, Melissa and I talked about wanting to do a Pomo Art Show, and thought, well, we really need uh, someone with credibility in the Pomo community who's also an artist, and Mio is a, an accomplished artist, uh, we need someone's help in organ- reaching out to the artists and, and organizing the themes and all of that. So we brought Mio in, and we started a few conversations with Mio, and one of the things that came out of those conversations was that Mio was very interested in how the pandemic affected Native communities and how art actually... it. it the time people had during the pandemic, because you couldn't gather with people, a lot of artists really went to work. And so the actual theme, the theme as we have it, was really Mio's idea and something she felt passionate about. So is art that was created during the pandemic? So gathering time is within the last three years what have Pomo artists created. Um, we we thought about a lot of the different artists and a lot of the different medias. So we have basketry, regalia. Um, We also have 2D art, um, textiles. And we, we made a list of different artists that I love and know, basically, and invited them to contribute to the show. I have seen so much changes during the pandemic of different art, whether it be PSAs of wash your hands or motivational um, art to say, hey, we still have hope. I've seen gatherers that have refined their basketry, which you'll see as part of the show, or changed the style of art. And what I wanted to show was the beauty of our different tribes. There's, you know, there's over 20 tribes, uh, Pomo tribes, within Lake Mendocino and uh, Sonoma County. And the majority of them actually sit here in Mendocino County and are adjacent to the Ukiah area. So we tried to get a good speckling of across the board in Pomo country, invite them to come in, bring some work that they've done during pandemic. What have they learned? What have they thought? what was going on in Pomo country during that time and how can we show the community at large what we're doing and they can see us because we're here. 
And so it not only works with the Grace Hudson as somebody who, or as a, as a place that we come and look at the basketry that has been collected, but also bring those contemporary artists into the museum so that everybody can see it. You're gonna have some of your art in the, at the exhibition? I collaborated with artist um, Bonnie Lockhart. We did some PSAs here in Mendocino County that actually went around to a lot, it went all the way to Arizona and that was Mask Up, and it was through the NCO, North Coast Opportunities. They funded us to do a PSA to the tribes, and we sent it all over. We sent over 6,000 masks. Those were, Bonnie did the background, and I did the detail in front, and it was of a dancer masking up to show our people, hey, you need to mask up. Our elders would do it for you, do it for them. And... I also have finger doodles that I put in. I call them finger doodles because I draw them on my phone and they're digital art. Uh -huh. um, they started out as just going to meetings and being bored, honestly, sorry. <laughs> um, I'm an EPA director. <laughs> um, and I started drawing bees and bugs in pollinators. And then we started getting more and more artists on Facebook as the pandemic started to progress. A lot of my artist friends were putting their work in progress on Facebook to show people do art, you know. And so I started uh, doing finger doodle cards and prints, and it shows either the basket designs, the birds we use, the history behind the basket design, or it shows a little bit of Pomo culture and life. One of the things, too, a lot of the artists um, submitted how COVID affected them. And so they certainly had more time on their hands to do different things, but they also often use that time to take courses, to deepen their cultural knowledge, um, to learn new things. And it was a chance to see people virtually that they couldn't see in person and connect that way, but it was also a way to talk about their culture. And one of those those big programs was Pomo Weaver Society. And I was wondering, Mio, if you wanted to talk a little bit more about that. I would love to plug the Pomo Weaver Society. <laughs> um, Pomo Weaver Society was started by Silver Galato. And he started as a Facebook page so that we could just kind of talk about Pomo basketry. It grew into those uh, Pomo weavers that are actually current and weaving. And then we started adding challenges, which is little teachings. These are all Pomo weavers. We're about 50 strong right now. so, And that's not all of us. That's just the ones that are online and active in the challenges but it's grown I mean it's, it's really taken off the challenges are basically how do you weave a certain style pomo basketry is well you can tell from the Grace Hudson exhibit pomo basketry has over nine different styles of weaving and it was we are known as the world's best pom uh, weavers and uh, the pomo Weaver Society brings those weavers forth and it refines their skills as well as teaching new people how to weave. Hmm. So it's a space to continue the traditions and keep passing the tradition on? Yeah, one of the ways the pandemic affected us was that we weren't able to get together and teach. We weren't able to gather, which is the name of the show, Gathering Time. We weren't able to gather together to go get materials. We held one gathering during the pandemic, 
and we were six feet apart, and we were we were all masked up, and we couldn't eat together, and we barely talked to each other, but we did it because we wanted to see each other so badly, and we wanted to gather those materials. I had a dog bane patch that needed gathering, and so I was like, okay, if we spread six feet apart, and Silver Galato, who's actually gonna be in the show with his work baskets and his fine twine and his coil work, He's going to be in the show, and he was the one that organized us because he's also a medical health director. So he was like, you must follow these rules in order mm. for us to gather. <laughs> when is the exhibition is gonna, uh, it's going to be set up and ready for the public? 5 p.m. on September 2nd, but no sooner. That also happens to coincide with First Friday Art Walk. So we will open a, the show will officially open at 5 o'clock that evening. Uh, are the artists are going to be present? They're going to be invited for the uh, opening? They all should be there. So far, I've had all of them say yes, they'll be there. Also, the Hoplin Dance Group will be opening us up in a good way because we wanted to show the community as well as the tribal people that come here. We wanted to start it in a good way. So we'll be starting it with their dancing. They'll be opening it up and then... During the run of the show, we'll be having panels and presentations for the entire show run. So it should be fun. Yeah. What What does it mean for the Pomo to have a space like this, like an uh, exhibition space for their art and like have a space that have some kind of like dedication to their culture? Well, for us, for the Grace Hudson Museum in particular, but there's other museums that we've been working with. Um, but the Grace Hudson, because of the collection that they have from Grace Hudson, we've been able to come in as a group and see different items and be able to actually see them, touch them, and sit there with our own material and recreate them. That's how a museum should be. You know, it should be interactive with the community and the culture that surrounds it. Having this space in particular for contemporary artists is huge for us to be able to come in to a space and get the same amount of play that the non-native community gets is not happening very often. It's growing, but it's venues like this that create that opportunity for us to move to a larger space as contemporary, alive people. And there's the difference. To show us in history is wonderful, but to show us as contemporary and alive and in the communities that we are part of is more important to me. What Mio's talking about can play out in different ways, too. For instance, the de Young Museum had an exhibition uh, last year about a French-American artist Uh, Jules Tavernier and his relationship to the Elam Pomo, which is in uh, east side of Clear Lake. And for that exhibition, which actually originated at the Metropolitan Museum in New York, the Met and the de Young borrowed collections from the Grace Hudson Museum and from some of the local tribes to display. And uh, Mio was a big part of that. You were one of the cultural advisors. Uh, for that uh, show. So, so is Sherry Smith-Ferry and Robert Geary, who's in Elam Pomo. And it follows suit that our small museum had collections that a big metropolitan museum, two big metropolitan museums, 
would find valuable. But the, to their credit, the Met and the DeYoung, they wanted to tell the full story of a relationship between a European painter and native peoples, and also tell the story about the degradation of native cultures and villages and how they are rebounding now. And uh, it's all a story about reclaiming native heritage and being proud of your heritage and introducing it sometimes for the first time to people who are not native. So. And many of the pieces that Robert Geary had on display, several of them will be on display as part of our exhibition since that was a major part of the pandemic. And I spoke with Robert recently and um, I learned a part of that story I hadn't known before and that he was in New York. He went to the Met and he saw that painting and he saw the exhibition label and he didn't see the alum people represented the way that he thought they should be. And so he reached out to the curator and and said, let's find a way to talk more about this. And so because of that, that's part of the reason why they formed that, was it a committee? Um, and they involved Pomo people in that show, and it featured much more of the the Pomo side of that painting. And that's one of the, the nice things about um, Robert's work, too, is sometimes there's a piece that Robert will display that he wanted to include because Jules Tavernier had not included it, and it was kind of an essential part of the Roundhouse experience. So it was a way to to educate a little bit more. Yeah, I wanted to say also part of this exhibit is also to to talk about not being able to gather during our time of loss. And I always get emotional during this part, sorry. But because funerals were so restricted and because people could not visit their loved ones in the hospitals and such, we wanted to provide a space and we want to acknowledge that also because it's still happening. Our funerals, yes, we can attend them now, but we've lost so many people in Pomo country across the world also for COVID. But in particular, when you're talking about small groups of indigenous people, when you lose 20 out of the 400, it is a much broader impact, and it means that you're losing uh, cultures. It means that you're losing speakers, dancers, cultural bearers. And so we wanted to acknowledge, acknowledge that as part of our exhibit, as well as the current living, thriving dance culture that we have. You are listening to Our Waves in KCYX, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. Nineteen years ago, the Botanical Gardens in Fort Bragg hosted a small crowd at its first Art in the Gardens event. A few artists were on hand, and the refreshments were lemonade and cookies. This year's two-day event, coming up this weekend, will feature 50 artists, and a crowd of perhaps 1,000 people a day can enjoy local fare from seven food vendors, ten wineries, and a brewery. Four local bands will entertain. The variety and emphasis on local culture is typical of the garden's events and fundraisers, as well as the garden itself. I did a tag team interview with Executive Director Molly Barker and Communications Manager Roxanne Perkins on a sunny Friday in July. 
Molly's been working in public gardens for 25 years, the last six in Fort Bragg. She says most public gardens are formal, with a clear structure, geometric shapes, and often a symmetrical layout. The Fort Bragg garden is different. This one is really freewheeling. A lot of people came and planned plants just to find out, will it grow here? You know, I'll just put this magnolia here. It'll be fabulous. <laughs> so, but it's wonderful. And we have great gardeners who do design, like you can see here at the perennial garden. It's well designed in terms of the plant combinations, but there's no straight lines. So, <laughs> also when I came here, the gardens were, were very, very strict about rules. You know, you had to go around with a docent and things like that. And then I'm here interviewing and I see dogs with people and wedding parties and finally I saw a couple people in wetsuits and I thought I got to consider that garden so that's how I got here. Tell me a little about the organization like how many staff you have and how many gardeners and all that. We have about 12 gardeners. Uh, Some are part-time, some are full-time and they're here year-round. And then we have a lot of seasonal staff. We also have uh, two people in the store who are full-time um, nursery and then administration we have three four full-time and a part-time so, and that's year-round so but we almost double the staff in the busy season because the cafe starts revving up the store revs up the gardeners may need to rev up but um, so it's relatively small staff for 47 acres a group of docents was meeting nearby probably about 10 or 11 They come every week, and they give tours uh, every week for people who want to show up. They don't have to sign up for those. And um, so we rely on our docents, but also our bigger group of volunteers. Veggie Garden probably has the most, because the Veggie Garden harvests this time of year twice twice a week to take food to the food bank. Over 7,000 pounds of fresh produce to the food bank, so... Uh, so there's a lot of volunteers there, and then just people who come weekly and deadhead the roses and, you know, do all sorts of cleanup for us. Tell me how art is part of, of this place. You know, this perennial garden is very painterly. I mean, it's just beautiful. So we have a group of volunteers named Fog, which is Friends of the Garden, and they've been instrumental in the gardens probably the entire time. And they were the ones that brainstormed the art in the gardens, especially Linda Brown was really a promoter of it. So it started really grassroots, and it's grown since then. We have a featured artist every year. And because this area has such fabulous artists, we've had some great featured artists, you know, Hilary Eddy, John Fisher, uh, numerous. Um, Carolyn Zeitler. Sev Ikes. Sev Ikes. This year's featured artist is Button Quinn, a local artist. Now that it's a two-day event, we actually start having artists apply in January of that year. And they send us a little bit about their artwork, some sample photos, and it's a juried art event. So we have some of our past featured artists and our art-knowledgeable volunteers and staff members judge and jury and select the artists that are going to participate. And we have had as many as 80 artists in one event, and that was kind of a bit too much. So we've scaled it back. There's a little bit over 50 this year. Um, And as Molly said, it's all on the event lawn, so it really kind of feels like you can see the whole event. It's really more vibrant looking, I think, when we have it all together. And the artists come and set up the day before, 
and they have all of their their artwork available for purchase and we try to treat them like royalty and help them out we've got volunteers helping them set up and break town they really have a good time we've got some that travel up to this area too um it's all mostly from california mostly local but there's some regional artists as well that just love adding this to their summer trip (laughs) and we do have some other crafts and uh, it's kind of a multimedia event it's not just painting or drawing there's sculpture and there's jewelry and you know, ceramics. So there's a real wide variety. And some of the, per- the part of the purchases do go to benefit the garden. It is a fundraiser for the garden. And it's good to support the artists too. There's a good amount of jewelry. We've even got um, Odin's organic dog treats that comes. <laughs> That's very <laughs> <And> artistic. <laughs> we've got some locals like Tiny Blue Studio who does their um, indigo dyed clothing and housewares and other clothing too, like North Coast Brine. And then there's fine woodworkers who turn these amazing bowls and cutting boards and other things like that. And then there's some people who bring large sculptures as well. So there's really a big range of fine art and then things that can be affordable by anyone. We have workshops going. We started this last year. So this year there'll be paper collage workshop and a pine needle basketry workshop. Those are more involved. And then there's more fun, easygoing paint and sip workshops where you paint with a glass of wine in your hand and there's kids painting too and those ones are a little bit more easy going there's a lot more of those classes so you can sign up day of but if you want to do one of the other workshops sign up in advance we are hoping that people will buy tickets online because parking is our biggest limiting factor um, and we you know we hope not to be able to turn anybody away we'll have extra parking that that day those two days but you know, if you can get your tickets online, it really helps us figure out what we've got coming. <laughs> and also carpool is great. Carpooling so is wonderful. Gold star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's not just for this event. That's every day. Uh, perennials are plants that do come back, but a lot of times uh, they, they collapse down to the ground during winter. Most of them really have their heyday in late summer, which is fabulous. And then the woody plants are things like shrubs and trees who keep their structure all year long. Mm-hmm. And in this climate, you you have a lot that keep their not only their structure but their leaves and and. Yes, uh, this climate. That's one of the reasons it is so amazing. You know, we can walk along, and when you're in the uh, Mediterranean garden, you can actually see. I don't know how many different continents it is, but it's you can see heath and heather, which are natural to um, Ireland, um, Scotland. You have Mediterranean plants that are from South Africa and other areas. You have succulents that could come from Mexico. So you're just looking at, you know, totally different areas all in one garden. Mm. Yeah, that's got to be really fun and, and kind of rare, right, for gardens? Right, and actually Ernie Schaefer... Uh, bought the property he was a nurseryman in southern california and he bought the property just for that it's like we'll see what we can grow here but he imagined it as a a flower garden more than a botanical garden it was called flowerland by the sea which is a wonderful name right (laughs) the gardens were founded by ernie and betty schaefer in 1961 And that's when he bought the property. And then I think it took them about six years to open up and charged one cent at the gate with a little fold-out table and a yellow umbrella and a lovely woman taking the admission fee. And I don't even know if they had a map. 
<laughs> Before that, though, we've heard um, that he used to give tours whenever anybody would stop by that was curious. He was very proud of the property. <laughs> it was truly one of those old roadside attractions uh-huh. with, the, with the great signs and a little souvenir store. And it's like, well, what's that? You know, pull over and, and come in. And Ernie would give a tour. We now, since the pandemic and people coming, we really see a difference in the way that people use the garden. They now come and stay. You know, they'll, they'll have a picnic. They'll sit and read. They'll, we had one woman, I've told this story before, but on the event lawn near one of the picnic benches, she had her little boom box and ear pods and just dancing away <laughs> like Isadora Duncan. <laughs> Again, this is different than the gardens I've been to before. The uh, gardeners themselves have a wide latitude for picking out plants when it like the perennials and the annuals when it comes to woody plants things are going to be there hopefully forever there's a little more discussion (laughs) and uh, our garden manager uh, Jamie Jensen really um, vets a lot of things and then you know I also have an involvement with that and if it's a really big decision like what we're going to do with the collection then we have a garden advisory group that advises us and they're they're pretty awesome. And Marty, we have these designed areas and really ornamental, and then we start shifting into our botanical collections. So if you went that away instead of this away, you'd see more of our camellia collection, which is very significant, our conifer collection, which we're really developing more of, and of course our rhododendrons, which are yes. yeah. <laughs> Those are yeah. So you know we have botanical collections as well as. Uh, horticultural pretty plants. Mm -hmm. Now what's this little area here? Well like I said in the 80s especially we had a you know in Fort Bragg in this area we have a great tradition of nurserymen and um, some of those people and also a fellow named Peter Schick who really loved a variety of plants like I said would come in and go wow, I've got this great camellia. I wonder if it'll grow here. Let's try. And same with the magnolias and same. So it's very mixed um, we've got rhododendrons in there. Are they native to here? The there, is, there is a native rhododendron. Because I know at the yeah. Pygmy Forest seem to be a lot of wild rhododendrons. Yeah, there are. Um, we have... We, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> we have some uh, species rhododendrons, which means they're native to somewhere. And then, and then we have cultivated rhododendrons, which means a nurseryman uh, worked at getting that rhododendron to be fragrant or bigger flowers or pink. Cultivar means cultivation. It's things where the human hands have been involved. So we're proud to have some of the um, the local nurseryman tradition represented here. Dan Charvet, too, who's a camellia hybridizer. Uh, we have a lot of his camellias. And then we have the annual rhododendron show every year because we have such a lovely and active American Rhododendron Society chapter here, the Noyo chapter. (laughs) Always looking for members. (laughs) Uh, And every May we have that massive rhododendron show where we get about 800 to 1,000 individual entries of anybody can enter. And they take a truss of their rhododendron or azalea and bring it in and enter. And you can win trophies and ribbons or just be a part of something great. Yep. All this amazing color and variety of rhododendrons and fragrance. This is Fern Creek, and uh, it actually waters most of the garden before it goes out to the Pacific Ocean. 
we're the last stop and uh, it's uh, beautiful and glad to still hear it running it's been nice this year of course everyone knows the the uh, late rains have been nice and it's just some days I come here and you can really hear it rolling and it's like yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. however it's dwindling down right well, now it does and we you know we're taking steps to already we don't water the event lawn and we've cut watering many places 50% and we're looking at different ways to retain our water so try to be on it yeah, I, we all have to be on it in yep. some way, huh? Yep. Oh, so pretty. It's so peaceful. Yeah, and some of these trails that go back, well, there's areas where you can sit. It's just lovely. That's why I spend my weekends here, too. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's about four miles of trails in total. We might need to remeasure at some point, but that's what I've heard. <laughs> you probably have some walkers who come every day. We have the Audubon who come um, twice a month. Twice a month. I mean, officially. And they do bird walks uh, in the mornings. The one on Saturdays, first Saturday of the month, is for beginners. Mm-hmm. And then the other one's on... The third Wednesday, third I want to say. I'm uh, a beginner. I mean, I'm the early bird walk. <laughs> uh-huh. The time that it starts varies depending on the time of year. I believe it's at 8:30 right now until October. But the reason they come is because they have collectively identified over 180 species of birds in this garden. So we're really quite a burden hot spot. And the event lawn right over here is a great place to sit and just watch the birds flit around between the the trees and the bushes and finding little berries. And Audubon, they really appreciate the fact that the trees that aren't a safety hazard, you know, the trees that are in, that are uh, dead, are great for wildlife. You know, so we allow those to stay as habitat. So we've reached the event lawn. Okay, and this This is is a rather large expanse. Everything will be. And right now also every Friday at noon, which we're getting closer to, there's meditation and every Sunday at noon there's yoga. want to point out to you this another example of the creativity of our staff our maintenance guy (laughs) maintenance manager pete baker is also an artist there you have a stump i believe a (laughs) cypress stump and out of it out of it completely uh stump it is a mushroom and it's a witch's witch's cap yeah witch's cap and actually, witches cap mushrooms do grow right You've in there. Got that label over there. Mushrooms are we consider it a collection here too, which is quite unique and unusual for gardens. Um, so, in the fall, you can come and learn about them with one of our many mushroom ID walks, or get more in depth with the mushroom ID workshop, which we're planning on having this year again. Um, and this event lawn area actually has quite a few different species popping up in and around it. We always ask that people leave the mushrooms where they find them and take only pictures because we want to leave them for other people to see. Wow, okay, this is a large, large space. Yeah, but it, it'll fill up. We have the stage. I believe the, the design's the same as it was last yeah. year. We put the stage in this area and artists all around. Food over here to the left. With some picnic tables. Picnic tables will be spread around. There'll uh-huh. be hay bales and plenty of room for dancing in front of the stage. Well, you'll need that. We yeah. will. 
especially this last year was the first one we had since uh, COVID, and there were a lot of dancers. Yeah. Yeah, it was really neat. Tell me about the dog access. I've seen quite a few dogs. They're all on leash. Mm -hmm. They are. That's all we ask. Your dogs can come and enjoy the gardens for free. We ask that you keep them on a leash and clean up after them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then especially in our vegetable garden, we just (laughs) added some new signs because that's a food production area. We ask that you curb your pets. (laughs) I have to say, I mean, this may not be radio worthy, but I have to say in the six years I've been here, I've only had to pick up... Uh, other dogs poop maybe four or five times. People are very respectful. That's why we're able to keep it going. Yeah. Uh-huh. And this year for Art in the Gardens, we don't want too many dogs, but you are allowed to bring your dog oh, with really? you. Yeah. No, we did it last year and it worked out really well. Okay. Okay. I got a dog. <laughs> it's so great that you're able to do that for, for dog people because, mm-hmm. of course, best friends. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so Art in the Gardens is coming up in the first weekend of August. There's some workshops on Friday, August 5th, and the main event is both Saturday and Sunday, August 6th and 7th, from 11 to 5. We really recommend you get your tickets in advance. You can do that online, and it helps to support the gardens and all these wonderful local artists and restaurants and wineries and breweries that participate in Art in the Gardens. Hope to see you there. You've been listening to an interview with Molly Barker and Roxanne Perkins of the Mendocino Coast Botanical Gardens in Fort Bragg. For Art Waves, I'm Marty Derlin. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.